Welcome to episode 141 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Richard Argentari, president of Nextera Analytics, or NEA. Rich leads this transformational energy analytics and consulting firm specializing in advanced modeling, predictive analytics, data science, and high-performance computing. Check out the NEA booth at the Distributed Energy Conference in Savannah in mid-August and at RE Plus in Vegas. Maybe I'll see you there. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. The Climate Champions is also sponsored by the Gridwise Alliance. Uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry, the Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. Also, check out the videos on my new YouTube channel, The Climate Champions, with interviews with Jigger Shaw, 11-year-old podcast host of We the Children, Zach Fox Duval, Peter Kelly Detweiler, PKD, and a keynote I did for Plug and Play Istanbul. Rich's team at NEA develops forecasting and optimization solutions that enable low-cost, sustainable power systems. NEA is a wholly owned, independent subsidiary of Nextera Energy Resources, the world's largest generator of renewable energy from the wind and sun. Oh, and don't mess with Rich, because he's a black belt. Okay, a Lean Six Sigma master black belt. And that's even more impressive. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Privat, and I'm here with Rich Argentari, president of Nextera Analytics, LLC. Rich, welcome to the Climate Champions. Great to be here. Thanks. I'm excited to talk to you. First question, with regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? What inspired you? It's something that happened when I was very young. So my father is an electrician. And when I was, I think, in about fifth or sixth grade, got a job at the New York Power Authority, uh, specifically at the hydroelectric plant there. And they had an unbelievable power vista that had all you would ever want to know about electricity generation, you know, the environment, different generating sources. And going there both when my father worked there and when I was a child, going to that place for you know museum tour, it really just intrigued me and really made me wonder why we couldn't do more in terms of renewable generation. Again, everybody knew the fossil fuel dilemma. You know, we're running out of fossil fuels or very dirty. You know, climate change maybe wasn't at the forefront of everybody's thought process back then. But even as a young person, you realize, boy, why are we doing this? We shouldn't be burning a bunch of fossil fuels when other alternatives exist. And I was hooked. And so fast forward years later, getting out of RPI, I went to undergrad at, at Rensselaer. I came out and got a job at GE in the energy division. And we started off and I was looking at gas turbines and working in that division. And when the opportunity came, bought Enron Wind. I 
couldn't hesitate to jump into the wind industry. Still in fairly early days from there, kind of the rest is history. I was hooked and I've been in the industry ever since. It's similar to me when Semper got involved with renewables. I tried a couple of times to move over and finally I was able to move into Semper Renewables. It was very exciting for me. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that what we were doing and, and how much opportunity there was in the industry was amazing. And then from there now with solar and storage and other technologies coming out, it's just, it's a great time. And it's it's wonderful that it's such a big industry. I said a few weeks ago, we were at a, a big meeting on renewables and climate. And it was in one of those big ballrooms, a thousand people. And later on, we were talking and I said, I remember when we used to have these conferences and there was like 20 to 50 of us, right? So it was a very, very smaller scale and not a very many people were there. So it's really unbelievable to see how much this is starting to come around and, and how much the industry is taking off. Yeah, I remember when I pitched SDG&E on getting into renewables and they were like, no way are we getting into renewables. <laughs> and, you know, now I think they would have loved it if they had asked the commission to be able to own renewables back then. But Exactly, exactly. So that's always been a big push. And I also think from my view, and I still tell the folks in our organization, one of the big challenges we've always had, which was how do we make sustainability affordable? Because whether you believe in it or not, you take away the decision if it's cost competitive, right? So we get into the renewable business. And I always said, my job is to make wind and solar the no duh. Here's what it costs you if you don't go with my solution. And here, here's what it does. And so that's the other piece is, you know, really a group like mine, we do all the analytics and software to help make these type of solutions possible. And really our job is to keep driving those costs down so that this does become the, you know, whether whether you're a climate champion or not, you don't have to be. It's it's the economic decision. So if you're just a good business person, it starts to become the no-dust solution. I'm convinced it's got to be about the dollar. Yeah. Yeah. That is the thing. And I, I know, I mean, look, it's it's great to also be in the industry because now there's a number of people, like-minded people that that share our passion for this this type of the industry and climate and really want to make a difference. And that's great. And that's really what keeps us going and get really top talent folks that, you know, come into the organization. But it's the same thing where our goal is to make it so that there really isn't a better solution. This is the best solution for all companies. So talking about the people that are now like-minded, that's a great introduction to my next question. And that is, what drives you to get up in the morning and do this? Well, it's it's funny because, and I do believe this, which is years ago, and, and we're here in the Twin Cities. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I'm probably one of the only people, by the way, sidebar, to go work for Florida Power and Light and end up in Minnesota. So, you know, that's when I started my career as an FPLer and, and then I came over. It was always easier for us because when we would write ads to attract people to come in, we could tell folks in a lot of the big corporate headquarters, right? If you think about it, we have you know, 3M and Best Buy and Target and, you know, headquarters in town. And we write our thing is like, look, retail's great, but if you really want to change the world, come work for Next Era, right? And I really believe that. I mean, it's not marketing. It's it, the people here and myself, what gets you up in the morning is you really believe, you know, look at how much generation we're putting in, looking at how we're hitting and changing really how people are viewing sustainability and climate. I mean, look, climate years ago, again, not even that long ago, 10, 15 years ago, I don't know if this climate stuff, is it even real? There's people that would question you. From my standpoint, these changes that we're seeing in the industry, that really is what keeps me up. And you start to see this traction and having the belief that you can make that difference every day is really what, what keeps us going. You mentioned more people believe in this, but what do you do to convince people that don't believe that things are changing? 
Well, I think really it's just a matter of look at what we can do. And, you know, I'll actually go as as to say, you know, I tell people often the utilities hadn't changed in so long. And I'm sure you've seen this in your background and career. It was we operated the grid very much the way we always had. If Edison was here today, he'd be like, oh, yeah, it looks pretty much the same, you know, so a bit fancier. And I, I'm sure you've heard it, too. There was the, the derogatory term, you know, Dugs, right? The dumb old utility guys and gals. You'd see things like that. And now you start to look at how we're using technology. You see the distributed energy, distributed generation. And people are like, okay, but why do I need that? I'm still a skeptic, right? You know, and is it purely from a climate perspective? But when we also are able to convince them, okay, even if you're not with me on climate and sustainability, but it can help with resiliency, right? It can help with how you're actually managing your organization. It can lower your costs. Again, that resonates. We can always pivot the, the message but we're giving you a better product at a lower cost that's actually sustainable. And whether you believe it or not, that's great. It's a knock-on effect. And that's where we always like our products to be, which is, again, going back to the, you don't have to think about it because this is the right answer just from a pure economic resiliency. We're selling a really, really good product now that I think most people can get behind. That's awesome. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think if we're going to win this, that's how we're going to win it. Right. That's the march we're on, right? And and so then our shop, I would I would say we're not responsible for putting steel in the ground, but I would have you challenge that because without our our wind solar resource assessments for financing and the steel wouldn't get in the ground either, but we were actually acquired by NextEra, okay? And I say we, I wasn't a part of this organization at the time, but it was acquired by NextEra to help do those resource assessments. But it really started as a supercomputing company. Before it was NextEra Analytics or WinLogix, it was called Sesco. As you may or may not know, Twin Cities is kind of a bastion of high-performance computing, Cray Computers, ETA, those kind of guys. When we came up, it was really, how are you able to do these types of assessments and what type of technology can you bring to make this a less risky investment? How can you operate it more efficiently? For a long time, it was a very difficult task. When I first took this job, we spent most of our time focused on just how we're going to schedule computing jobs because we're using these really large computational fluid dynamic models, these really large mesoscale models that we had for wind and solar resource, and just trying to build enough physical hardware to run our models on and do all of that type of computing was a daunting task. And we spent a lot of our time just managing that type of thing. And then, you know, through the magic of the cloud, you know, we're able to move our move a lot of that to the cloud to compute those jobs, right? And so now instead of doing maybe three or four scenarios for a wind or solar project, we literally run millions of scenarios for those projects now for design optimization purposes. We're using AI and ML. And we know that it seems like everybody in the industry is doing something with it. But we were early adopters of that because if you started to look at how should we design like wind arrays, all of those type of things were really unlocked both with this high performance computing that's available to you now in the cloud as well as newer techniques and learning technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence to be able to give you a better answer that people will invest in. And we can also detect more of the underperformances that are in those technologies. You gave us a nice intro right there. Are there more things you want to say about what NEA does? It's three major categories, right? We do design optimization, we do asset performance tools, and we do energy management. So that's a lot of scheduling, dispatch, trading tools, that type of thing. And we can even get into DERMs and stuff like that. When I talk about you know asset performance, a lot of folks also do that. 
But our bread and butter, when we started way back in the beginning, those design tools is what I think really starts to unlock all of these you know, wonderful projects, specifically integrated resource design. It's been almost seven or eight years, but I think we are a very differentiated feature for NextEra to be able to do integrated resource design. And that is give us any load. It could be as large as a full utility or down to an individual building or portfolio of buildings. And we can run multiple technologies. And when I say multiple technologies, we can show you everything from taking your conventional generation you may have today, those load profiles, and how if we added wind, solar, storage, how the dispatch would change, what your levelized cost of energy will become. We can also do things all the way down to building level. If you replace an HVAC system or lighting, add a distributed generation to it, what would that do and how would that economically impact your bottom line? And so really to be able to do, you know, when we tell people this, I can do a utility IRP in less than a week. And so when I say that for people in the utility business, they're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And and it's not like just like an easy desktop-ish type study when it comes to somebody with an Excel file could probably try to mimic that. But I'm talking about we use the actual dispatch algorithms that we use in production in those, and we have an entire simulation environment. So we understand if you're in a particular area, if you have certain contracts and markets, we can show you that. We can even start to change weather patterns to show you what it would do on that same system. We could change your loads dramatically if we wanted to change your load shape. And so those tools, when we bring customers in and show them, and I always laugh because they're just wrapping up their IRP they've spent the last year doing. And we go, oh, we ran one too. Here's what we think. And they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like shocking. But the fact that we can do that and then even show you scenarios, because as you know, IRPs, integrated resource plans, I don't know if everybody knows that. Thank you. They don't have a lot of different permutations or scenarios. There might be a few base cases, some, you know, you can change different amounts but I can show you a solar only base case. I could show you a solar plus wind. I could add different amounts of storage and how firm do you want these renewables to be? And I can show you the cost and, and all of that. So all of that's really unlocked by technology. And again, going back to that cloud computing. And then once we've built those and are able to build the projects, we get into our asset performance because now you have assets that we told you were going to do a bunch of wonderful things for you. But if they don't actually perform that way, we need to change and help you fix that. The OEMs have wonderful tools, but that is really the tip of the iceberg. So we've built a lot of, again, you know, using AI tools to help improve our fleet performance and then even optimize things like what order should we work on particular tasks? Should we include PM, prevent and maintenance tasks with it and do all that type of optimization? At Temporary Renewables, the biggest thing really was how much should we bid on this project that we're going to buy? <laughs> we're going to buy these projects from a developer and we have to make a bid that's going to get us a certain amount of return. And that return, of course, is based on cost of capital, but it's also based on curtailment and estimates of how much of the energy can be taken and what it's going to be worth and what the PPA needs to be. So it sounds like you help with all of those things. We absolutely do. And I, and by the way, I'll, I'll go back and um, I'll ask you a question. I don't know if this is a faux pas, but it was like, so at your days at Semper, what did you see in terms of those projects with the stated value versus your assessment? How far off were you or even realized value once the projects were in your portfolio and operating? I don't think I'm allowed to answer that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still under NDA, but I feel like I can't give away those details. 
Well, here, here's something I'll say. 0.1% return could make or break whether we bid on the projects and whether we get the projects. So it was extremely important to have confidence, which meant we had to be conservative because no one wanted to lose their job over getting a project that we shouldn't have gotten. So anything you can do to really understand the return is huge. Oh, absolutely. And and what you're doing in terms of even optimizing those returns in like sub 100 BIP you know, returns on these, these investments. I will say, and I'm not saying this specifically about any, any utility, I'm not giving away any information, but I think across the industry, you can see that for a number of years, a lot of folks that maybe were, had less sophisticated models would, this is what got financed. And then there was some number lower than that. And we just recently went through this. We were talking with, with an external firm that wanted to know what our bias pre-construction to operations were. And in the last eight years, I had to have the team check it like six times because we effectively on the projects we developed over that time frame, in operations, we ended up on the win side with effectively zero bias, which is if you think about predicting the future. Now, I say this because while this may or may not seem like going back to who's championing you know, sustainability and the climate, there's also been times where we've even disclosed a lot of our learnings and findings to help the industry out because people were having major flaws. And I can think maybe eight or nine years ago, there was a big realization where people got wake drastically wrong in wind, orders of magnitude, that's wake that was showing up. And Nextera had financed and we instrumented wind farms with more instruments. I mean, we had scanning LIDARs, vertical, horizontal LIDARs, SODARs, more MET towers per turbine than any other project so we could get that information, collect it, and shore up our models. We just recently did something similar with a half dozen solar farms where we instrumented every string, getting panels, higher meteorological instrumentation to understand how they're actually performing so that we can model it more effectively. And I think that when when you look at those investments, especially at the scale that we do in, in terms of building you know, renewable projects, it's really helped us, but we've also found that, and some people accused us of a, it's a poison the well strategy, but you know, we, we've talked to banks and others where we even looked at solar and you see this like sub hourly impact. So, you know, energy industry really great at our 8760s and we like to look at everything at, at the hourly, but within that hour, solar starts looking very different and is, is much more variable. And if you don't model that appropriately, you can come to some very wrong conclusions, but if your competitors don't know that, they don't bid that. And so they they drive prices in the wrong direction. People buy projects that then don't perform and you undermine the industry on the long run. And so I think a lot of it is we're publishing papers. We're also helping inform the industry while there are competitors. We need to bring them along because you know we all have to be smart about what we're trying to build. Yeah, you want them to do better because it's better for the industry. But at the same time, you want to keep your advantage. I mean, you want your customers to be able to walk away from the right projects that they feel are priced too high, and you want them to bid a little bit more on projects that you think are a bargain, right? That's exactly right. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't help for you to be the only vendor, the smartest vendor in the room, because you know, if someone convinces a customer to do something that's bad for them, they get a bad taste in their mouth, not only of that vendor, but potentially our industry. And so we don't want that to happen either. And so it's really important to try to, you know, as best we can, inform both our customers as well as even our peer group to be able to evaluate projects the right way. Yeah, but I have to imagine it's a little bit like Intel where they kept faster chips in the back room until they needed them. Back in the day, they waited for AMD to catch up and then they would release their new chip. 
because you still want to win, right? Well, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think that there's a little bit of, well, how much are you disclosing? And it's like, and, and I think on things like, I'll use Wake as an example, um, disclosing how much of an impact or how much greater of an impact it was than people had been modeling was very important to disclose full you know, transparency on that. Now, some of the techniques that we came up with in terms of our design optimization, so we built a tool we affectionately call WinDot. The dot is the design optimization tool. And so we have a lot of dots here at NextEra. And so the design optimization tool and how we design those arrays optimally and improve our returns on those and how you can mitigate some of those effects, we don't necessarily disclose that information. So totally get it. So you talked a little bit about your prior career. You talked about GE a little bit, and you talked about coming from NextEra to lead this organization, NEA, in the Twin Cities. Do you want to talk more about your prior background and how you got to where you are? I, I understand that you're also a black belt. I am. So GE, I mean, of course, through and through, I, I am a black belt. I will say this. The first thing is full disclosure. I somewhat forced gumped my way through a career, right? So you start here. I had a bit of an atypical. I, I started on the leadership program at GE. I went there, but I did like a, a very unique rotation on that program up in DC where we had a a software business at GE and then came back to energy. And then I went over to the wind business, like I mentioned. And that was, a, it was an amazing time, amazing growth. But I moved quite a bit, as you can appreciate. And often is the time at places like GE. One move that came a little too quickly. And I, at the time, decided to, you know, maybe step off that treadmill. And I, I briefly went, and this is going to be kind of a wacky one, as I went into the transportation business, I actually worked at Ryder. I actually started a Six Sigma program there when I was at Ryder. And I helped, you know, form strategy for their supply chain services business at the time. And uh, it's funny because if you want to talk about a parallel to industries, and, and it's going to sound very wacky, in the transportation industry, they're called loads and they're serviced by power units. And it's perfectly matched. You have to have enough power units to move these loads. And so much like generation, it's, it's very similar. And so we also helped do optimization projects on how to optimize customer loads doing the same thing. By the way, much like the energy business, fuel is one of the biggest driving costs. So you have to manage your fuel. You have to be able to run efficient routes. And I did that for a few years until FPL came calling. I want to interrupt a little bit. <laughs> so in the energy industry, our capacity is pretty low, but in trucking, I'm sure the capacity has to be a lot higher. No. So by region, that's not always true. So much like the grid, it's actually very, very regional. And so you have high capacities in some region and people are just cutting each other's throat to go as you know aggressively as they can in, in pricing. And then there's certain other areas where there's less capacity. Realistically, if you were producing something in the state of Florida, there's so many empty trucks taking backhauls because so much product comes down into the, <laughs> into the state. And then you're just looking for stuff to haul back, you know, back up to some of these other areas. And so it's a very interesting dynamic in terms of pricing. And by the way, much like, you know, when you start looking at negative pricing in certain markets, like for energy, right? Maybe not quite negative in the trucking business, but pretty close because if you were going to drive that truck anyway with nothing in the back, there are certain areas that have oversupply of, you know, if it's the right direction in the right part of the country, you'd be very shocked. And so you have overcapacity in some areas, and then you're very capacity constrained in others. Another not really analogy is the trucking industry has always been two-way. Yeah. Energy is just starting to get the whole two-way thing going. That's exactly right. 
there were a lot of parallels there. I spent a few years there. It was, it's a fascinating business. And now with mobility coming around and looking at electrification of fleets and how we can also help with sustainability and e-fuels and things like that, it's turning out that, that that short stint I had in the transportation industry has helped us out tremendously with some new products there. I cut you off before. Do you want to pick up from there? Oh, yeah. And so I, I was at Ryder. It was a wonderful job. Folks from Florida Power and Light called me, asked me if I wanted to come and join the firm. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, my heart still lies with energy and renewables. And so it was a no brainer for me to come back into the fold. I was working on some large, you know, master service agreements. I, I actually came into the supply chain for Florida Power and Light. After a couple of years, they said, hey, we bought this company up in Minnesota that does, you know, high performance computing and resource assessments. Would you be willing to go lead that? And it was supposed to be a brief two to three year stint. And that was 13 years ago. You must be loving it. It's phenomenal. People here are wonderful. Culture is excellent. It was really smart what the company did for our group because we are an independent subsidiary. And when I say that, not just in concept only, we've had an operating model here where we operate much more like a startup. And I'm not just kind of saying that we have our own equivalent to like a CIO, CFO. And so what we've been able to do is be able to deploy certain technologies and things faster than we would have using some of our, our traditional, you know, how we would have done it at the utility. And so we've been able to kind of maintain that culture up here a bit more, and that's really helped spur innovation on our product lines. And that's a very difficult decision for a utility to make, to not make their subs do exactly the same processes <laughs> as heavy as they are, as they do. It really is difficult. So applaud for that. Yeah. And I think it's really helped NextEra specifically in one key area. That is the rate at which we can test. We do R&D. We come up with initial products very quickly, test it, fail quickly, or learn from it, revise and move on. And I mean, as you know, big utility projects with different types of accounting structures where, you know, everybody wants to make sure that everything is built in a very specific way, a very certain way. And while that's very important in, in many of the utility areas, in emerging technologies, I think about, I'll just give you one real quick story. Yeah. So nine years ago, I think it was, batteries, we we're looking at storage, right? We we're going to get into storage, do more with storage. And we decided, you know, we really want to have a more robust battery control system, right? And I'm not talking about low level battery controls like PLCs and things like that. I'm talking about higher level charge and dispatch algorithms, that type of thing. So we embarked on a product that we affectionately at the time called Bacon, Bacon being battery control, right? So we, we came up with a cute name. But of course, most of the folks throughout NextEra were struggling because we've never managed or controlled batteries before. And because you haven't, it's a circular argument, right? What makes your group think you can control a battery because you've never done it before, but because you've never done it before, you never will do it. <laughs> so it's somewhat of a, of a circular argument. And so our group went and bought a trailer. We slapped some solar panels on the roof. We put some batteries inside <laughs> and we were able to you know, grid connect it in our parking lot. I would challenge anybody that's at a major corporation or large... <laughs> Go figure out if you could do that, if you could go buy a trailer on Craigslist, throw some solar panels on it, put some batteries in and make a phone call to Excel to see if we could connect this to the grid, right? That right there was the start of what you know we did in terms of once we get past that assessment business and we get into microgrids and controls and derms, that was our first you know entrance in there. And now fast forward a few years later, 
we bought a generation one from a large battery manufacturer and we needed a control system for these batteries. And luckily, because we started a bit earlier and we had the trailer, we had a system that was running and we felt very confident in it. And we were able to roll it out to some of those battery systems and watch a major improvement on how they were being managed and dispatched. Our shop is very much a rapid apps type of a team where we can develop that stuff in, in very short order. And that's allowed Nextera to really be able to continue to pursue, you know, pursue. We do dip our toe in, right? We didn't build the world's largest battery system and then just put this untested software on, right? We did it with some smaller pockets, CNI-sized batteries, commercial-sized batteries. We put the software on, we tested it. It worked very well. We moved on and moved up from there. Yeah. At Sempra, we did a project in Hawaii. It was a wind project and they required specific ramp rates. So you had to put energy storage in to control ramp rates. I don't want to get too technical, but we bought them at the time from the leading battery supplier, A123. So of course they went under, but our folks were so good, really, at Semper Renewables, some great engineers. They wrote the controller for the battery. I think it's working to this day. Well, yeah. And, and so now fast forward, one of our, our key products. And, and by the way, our group for a very long time was held as you know a crown jewel, secret sauce. And those words were very much used for every year. I, I felt like that, that scene in the Shawshank Redemption where they kept writing letters for the library, right? <laughs> Every year, Rich would come to strategy and say, we should be selling our software to the external market. And, you know, it's like, no, 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 secret sauce, go away. And over time, I think we're starting to see that the industry needs to be able to integrate this better. And so in the last, I'd say, year or so, year and a half, it was like, yep, you should absolutely be selling this into the market. And we should be offering these capabilities because it's going to unlock more renewables for the market as a whole. That's fantastic. A lot of companies would shy away from that, not only from the competitive perspective, but also because if something isn't going to make a lot of your money, do you really want to spend time on it and stand up a business? That's a difficult decision. So congrats on that. Yeah, it's outstanding. And I agree with you because it is one of those things where we'll make money, but not when we start comparing it to the rest of the organization. Yeah. But I will say that we've already seen this. Like One of the early customers was a university out West that is a solar and storage project. And we were able to almost double the returns that they were expecting to see on that because we could do one of the first hybrids in California to be able to do this dispatch and the market services for them in a way that far exceeded the expectations. And now they want to do more projects. So the strategy is working. We see customers where we're able to do this. Another one, which was, um, you know, that we did it for a big bank. Well, this one's actually public knowledge, but uh, JP Morgan signed a um, an agreement with us. Same thing. They had a, a number of buildings that we took their energy and we were able to help optimize and do things like even uh, day ahead versus real-time price arbitrage and, and things like that, and able to give them a significant return on that. And our software allows us to do that for customers. And now, obviously, that makes them more attractive in these projects that they want to go pursue. And, and that's, how we, that's how we keep going back to the beginning of the conversation. This is how we make people want to do the right thing. Can you share one of the biggest setbacks of your career? I've made... A couple of major setbacks since I've been in this job. And every single one of them is what I would give anyone that's in our industry. And I actually think this is probably the single biggest impediment for most firms as we get into the worlds of ESG, uh, sustainability, and climate is the allure of data lakes and platforming. Okay. There's nothing wrong with platforms, there's nothing wrong with data lakes. However, they can oftentimes be this thing where you want this one perfect 
architecture, or you want to go build an architecture that's infinitely, you know, extensible and it will do everything. And what you end up with is, you know, if, if it does everything, it's kind of a spork. You don't want to use it for soup and you don't want to use it for steak. So, you know, that's, it doesn't do either very well. So all of these technologies have unlocked a lot for our company, but I think what I can, I can mention three specific projects where I let the team go a little too far down the framework architecture platforming route. And, you know, while we tell everybody, even next era 360 that we sell is a platform, you know, I say platform in air quotes, it's a platform, but the pieces were built, you know, there's, there's common technology, but the pieces were built where we needed a battery controller. So we did that bacon tool, right? We needed to build a wind design optimizer. So we did wind dot or S dot for solar, right? And when you're that focused, it works. But when you build this, well, someday this thing might need to do all these other pieces and then you don't start. And then you realize, like, we look backwards, like, we just spent a year and we didn't actually get anywhere. Yeah. And so my biggest setbacks were, and again, in the room, logically, these all seem like very reasonable things and very reasonable expectations. And so the only thing I, and I, I'm, I always beat this drum for everyone, which is get started and go. You know, everybody's worried about tech debt or refactoring. Those are all way lower cost than doing nothing. And I'm worried even today, all these wonderful tools and systems from people that we all know, they will work, but then organizations freeze because we want to first do a big architecture design framework, but you could be reducing carbon today. You can make a decision at a low enough cost within your signing authority today. You know, that's a very interesting perspective. And I say that I don't know that I can even agree 100% with the idea of not building that architecture first, that framework. But I can agree that it's very easy to overdo it. And I think maybe the objective from my perspective has to be to do a light architecture. Like you have to at least know where you're going with the architecture, some kind of a guide, some way maybe to get some reuse out of it. But you can't boil the ocean. But more importantly, with climate change, the ocean will be boiling. The ocean will be boiling. It's right. a bad metaphor. <laughs> no, no, but that, but that is exactly what I mean. And 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 I, I don't want to imply that there's no architecture, right? Like that that doesn't make any sense. And there's always architecture, but it's very quick that it can become the forefront. Like all of a sudden it becomes your objective to do this yeah. over-architecting something. And you could get something out very quickly. And, um, you know, look, I would even say today, there's a lot of negotiating and haggling and how are we going to measure carbon and how are we going to do and a lot of it is like, I'll tell customers, look, here's the deal. You know, we have P times Q, price times quantity, right? We're going to have Q times C, right? So it's just going to take your quantity times carbon. Do you even have your quantities yet? Because regardless of what exact carbon, you know, accounting we all agree upon, at some point, we should be able to agree upon the quantity consumed, right? <laughs> and have you collected that in your organization? And there shouldn't be anything that's necessarily preventing you from starting to do that. And you don't have to spend an inordinate amount of money to start to get that all coalesced to understand where you are on your carbon journey. What success are you most proud of? I think it is the next Air Analytics team. So the thing I didn't tell you earlier in the interview, and I can I can say it now because there's enough distance behind us. There was a significant question of whether we made a bad decision right after we bought, because you understand that the integration of a, of a new firm is always a challenging thing for an organization. And I give both our, our executive management a lot of credit for being patient with us in the first few years, right? But I will say that having come here from 
you know, at the time when I took this job, you know, a lot of folks were like, I don't know what that group is. Nobody knew Nextera had it, including Nextera employees. And now I think that we're an integral part of almost everything both FPL and Nextera does. It's pretty awesome. And to see how much renewables we've enabled to be built in the country and how much impact that's had on climate, that's something where you go to bed at night and puts a little smile on your face and you know you've really made a difference. And so I think for my career, this has probably been the single place where I've had the most impact. I'm very proud of that piece of it to build these tools for the industry. I recently did a, like a one minute video and maybe a three minute video on whether the efforts that we're making are a drop in the bucket or trying to dig a hole in the ocean, which my guide in Greece, he said it was trying to dig a hole in the ocean. And some other person on the tour said, no, no, it's like a drop in the bucket. And I said, yeah, it's a drop in the bucket. If we each put drops in, we're gonna fill the bucket. But if it's like digging a home ocean, then we're doomed. So what is your vision for the next 10, 20, 30 years? Are we going to make it? I absolutely believe, yes, 100%. And the reason why I believe it so firmly is because, by the way, there's a lot of things that need to happen, but there's two pieces of this. One is, I think it's it's a drop in the bucket, but I think the drops get bigger. It's kind of a compounding interest problem. So the more drops we can put in that bucket, you know, and, and they, they build upon themselves, I think that's the big piece. I also have to believe that. And I say this because when I took this, this role, we have a science team, um, everybody, a bunch of PhD atmospheric scientists. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's too late. Climate's too late. And I just remember very distinctly early at one of those meetings telling them, if you actually believe that, if you truly believe that in your heart, then you should just sit in your office, kick your feet on the desk and read a newspaper because there's nothing we can do. And so if you actually believe that, then why, then you know, it's, I hate to say that why bother, but that's what you're telling me. If you really believe we're digging a hole in the ocean, then it's, it, you get the little bit of the why bother. And the, the reality of it is it, it's not a why bother. We know we can make an impact. From my perspective, if we're digging a hole in the ocean, I'd rather go down with a shovel in my hand. Absolutely. And if you're going to tell me that it does, you know, none of it matters, whatever, and it's like, Yes, to your point. Then, then why? Then what? Do you, like, what are you even trying to do? You have to believe that. And I'm with you. Like, if we don't get there, well, I agree. I'll be the person there trying to bail the boat as fast as anybody. And I think that that's the rest of our team here feels the same way. We're definitely making an impact. Can you give advice to people listening to this podcast about how they could help mitigate climate change? The same thing I said about technology applies here. You have to start and start doing now. Not to keep harping on that architecture piece, but it's the same thing. If I only had a better, you know, bucket, or I had a bigger pump, or I had a, the the best type of pump, and it's like, well, you could be doing something now. I mean, somebody might be working on a better pump, or you know, bucket, or whatever the analogy is. I think when it comes to climate, do something. I know it's like, you know, it's it's so it's such a huge problem. And by the way, that's also what also makes me believe it's very solvable. Eisenhower said during the Second World War that if you want to solve a problem, make it bigger, right? It's the opposite of eating an elephant. You know, everybody's the old adage, if you actually say the whole thing is, how do you eat an elephant in your path? And the in your path is an important part because if the objective is to get the elephant out of your path, maybe we just lift it up or go around or, or something. And I think that if you make the problems bigger, you try to solve it, that's fine. But then it starts to become overwhelming. And if you could just start, do something right now in your organization to start helping make progress towards those goals. That's the most important thing anyone can do. That's one of the reasons that I dislike the 100% goals that are set way in the future. They drive me crazy. Not that I don't like the aspiration. Of course I do. 
but it's much more important to get the 50% by 2027 because that is something we can do at a good cost, you know, that lowers rates. So let's focus on the problems that we can awesomely solve. And we can have another set of people, definitely. Let's focus on new solutions that get us the rest of the way, but let's get some objectives that we can do that don't put the solution off. By the way, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and at the risk of maybe another thing that might get me fired that our MNC team will let me say, yeah, I actually think that most of these targets are the most important of the targets you set within your current executive staff's tenure. Yes. So if they have five to 10 years left in their tenure or whatever, that's the most important goals because everything beyond that is the next person's problem. Yeah, we just kicked the can, right? We just can't make those goals so far out. That's right. And so I think it's really important today, what can we do? We've even seen this in the in the renewables business. Don't delay those decisions. It's better to start making progress towards that goal now, not 10 years from now. So what can people do? Some advice. Well, the first thing is understand where you're at in that journey. Like, where are you? Like, just today, do you even know where your sources scope one, scope two carbon are? What levers do you even have to pull? And then from that point, yes, look, if we're going to kick the can on technology, and this is this is a very a bit of a nuanced point, but if you kick the can on technology, spoiler alert, technology always gets cheaper. So if you waited 20 years, of course, it'll be cheaper, but then it may be too late. Or if everyone were to make that decision, technology doesn't get cheaper because we never get scale. And so part of this is, is it the right answer? Can your business economically afford to do the right thing now to unlock future possibilities for it? And I think that that's a really important you know, nuance. But I think what can you do is first understand where you're at. Don't swing for the 100%. Do the first 50 or 60%. And those, I do think, are the no-brainer decisions. You can make very big improvements with technologies that exist today that worrying about that last 10% where we need new technology to help solve it is a good excuse to do nothing, but it's just an excuse. You should absolutely get started today. Absolutely. It's one of the arguments I use for electric vehicles. And I used 10 years ago, if we don't do it, it's not going to ever get lower in cost. But now we're seeing the cost drop. Stop waiting, get in the game. I want to say that to Toyota, especially. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I completely agree. I think you know what I mean. Yeah, 100%. But uh, we, we just have to do it. That's exactly right. And so that's the, the single biggest thing that people can do. And don't use that last 10% or 20% as the excuse not to get started. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I did have one question just because um, you've had a lot of uh, very interesting and significant people. You know, I, I went back in preparation for this. I started looking at Pat, you know, looking, listening to past interviews. What have you heard from other people you've spoken to that is probably one of the single either shocking or changed your mind about something or most poignant things that you've you've heard or seen in the, you know, because you've had also probably some offline conversations with those same people? I'm not going to say anyone is the most, but I recently interviewed Andrew Vivi, and he likened this fight against climate change and the technology around climate change to the Internet. And he said with the internet, initially, we thought it would do a few things, but we didn't know that it would change every facet of our lives. Every business, no matter what business you're in, the internet is part of it. You have to make it part of your business, even if it's just paying bills. No one can ignore the reality. And that's where climate change technology is going to come in. Every business is going to have to figure out how to do things that embrace climate change mitigation technologies. 
So that was, I think I hadn't thought of it in that internet way. I, that's actually very insightful. I, I that, That's what I was wondering. It's something like that where I would, I, it's always interesting when somebody frames a topic that obviously you're very familiar with and it makes you think that way. That's, I, I love those type of comments. Okay, and on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap that up with a wrap. It was at your father's company and a tour that your decision was made. You decided that climate change mitigation was important in the fifth or sixth grade. When people say, what? It can be cheaper, huh? You say your job is to make the decision, uh, duh. The generation we use to electrify us, we have to rearrange. Everybody has to figure out a way to change. Even if they don't have the climate change bug, you convince them it's better. Hey, don't be a dug. You want the entire industry a journey to better renewables to begin, but you're not giving away everything because you still want to win. Startups have an advantage when they want to meet their goal because they could do things like put energy storage in their backyard like bacon for a battery to control. This conversation, it was sweet as a strawberry. It was also even sweeter like a being cherry. I'm so glad we talked. It made me so merry. It was intense to discuss this stuff with you. Very. Thank you so much, Rich Argentary. <laughs> wow, that is awesome. love the passion Rich shows for his entire business. The people, the technology, the clean energy industry, and the mission to change the world. I just saw John Wick 4, and one of the philosophical quotes was, how you do anything is how you do everything. I'm not saying that that is always the case, but Rich's level of excitement for everything he discussed, in this case, made me a believer. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rate it five stars if you're an Apple user and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And check out my new YouTube channel. Just search for The Climate Champions and Lee Crevat. It is great for renewable energy that Rich was able to convince his leadership team to open up NEA's analytic solution to everybody else. It will lift the entire industry, resulting in more renewable energy projects with stronger results and help to mitigate climate change.